0: Okay, yeah, English 325, short staff today, but a really exciting book that, I mentioned this on Friday, okay, Um, whenever in this class you come upon a text that we take more than one day to read, okay, so that we spend more than one day on, um, those are the texts, they're frequently longer, and they ask a little bit more of you, but those are the texts that are actually um, the most important ones as well. Not just for like you and learning and all of that good stuff, but also because these are the ones that are going to be really the focus of the exams. Okay, so if we give more than one day to a text, if we give three days to a text, if we do a week to whatever. Um, these are often the things that are going to be emphasized in the short answer questions, and then on the final when there's an essay, these are the texts that you're gonna be asked to write about. Okay? So there's some incentive to keep up with these texts, even though they're longer and they take us a little bit more time to get through. They actually are the most important things, and that's why we spend a little more, more time on them. So Mary Rowlandson's Captivity Narrative, I, just, I love this. Um, this, is, this is a woodcut. This is an illustration from a title page of one of the earliest editions of this book, um, which was a massive bestseller, by the way, in early America, one of the like, most popular books in early America of its time period, uh, late 17th century. And we'll talk about why. But I love this because uh, this gun is, like, as big as Mary is. <laughs> it's, a, it's a very strange image. This gun is, like, as tall as she is, and she's being such a badass in this picture. Um, maybe we could talk a little bit more about, like, her characterization later on. These people don't look like natives at all over to the right. The coats that they're wearing give us a very different sense of who they are and where they're coming from. The tomahawk suggests nativeness, but of course they also have the guns, which they do in the text as well. Um, It's an interesting image. Okay, so what are we going to do today? We'll talk over the guiding questions, but the first thing actually we're going to do is I have to um, define and describe and talk you guys through what a captivity narrative is. Okay? A captivity narrative Um, Captivity narratives are really important for the study of early American literature and there's a couple of reasons why. One of the reasons why is that captivity narratives are considered perhaps, as I've written up here on this slide, the first distinctly American genre. Does people know what genre is? What a genre is? Yeah. Like a type of book? Like a
1: comedy,
0: drama, type? Yeah, genre basically in the literature classroom means something like a kind or a type. So, you can have genres and subgenres, right? But a genre in the context of the literature classroom is something like a kind or a type. So, this is like one of the first distinctly American types of literature. And the reason why it's one of the first distinctly American types of literature is because they talk about, captivity narratives are about, a particularly American event, which is, of course, being taken captive by native people, right? So the captivity narrative, as a genre, its principal defining characteristic is that these stories talk about the experience of being taken captive by an indigenous group and brought into indigenous society. So these were, really properly speaking, one of the first distinctively American genres. All the other genres of early American literature, most of the other stuff that we're gonna read in this class they have their origins, they have their antecedents, they have their predecessors in Europe, right? Whereas with the captivity narrative, it really starts in America, right? Because the experience that it describes is a particularly American experience. So that's a really important thing to know, and it's one of the reasons why we kind of emphasize this text, because it has a kind of really prominent place in terms of um, the uh, literary heritage of colonial America and, and through the uh, beginnings of the United States. Okay, so second thing to know about captivity narratives is, is that they're the first American bestsellers. In fact, just like I mentioned a, a minute ago, this book sold like mad. This book was one of the most popular books written and published in the 17th century and actually sold really, really well through the 18th century as well. It came out in new editions and new copies um, for a long, long, long time. Um, you'll notice that this image that I had on the prior slide, like I said, it comes from the title page of one of the volumes. And if you can see at the bottom of this title page, this is from 1773, so almost fully a hundred years after the book is published. Okay? And that actually might help you to explain, help us to explain why these native characters, these people who are about to ca- capture Mary, they don't look particularly native, and they don't have clothes that look particularly native either. It's actually because... Um The people who made uh, title pages for books who made these illustrations, they would recycle those illustrations. And so in some other context, these people will be like British loyalists, right They'll be like revolu- like British Army in the revolutionary context. right, so like they've recycled these illustrations. so if they don't seem quite right, that's kind of why. But the book is really really, um, popular, and maybe we can talk about why by like kind of appealing to these two uh, phrases. So, the first, some in our house is right at the beginning of the narrative. Some in our house were fighting for their lives, others wallowing in their blood, the house on fire over our heads, and the bloody heathen ready to knock us in the, on the head if we stirred out. Why would this type of comment um, make a book like this a bestseller? Why would a statement or comment like that do that? Man. Well, like based off like what they've heard
2: before, like Columbus like had a very different interpretation of it and stuff like that. The earlier, literature,
1: like I don't know, Native people were timorous and stuff. Okay. Yeah. And now the people are invading
0: their homes and they have guns and it's new to people being I mean, interested in it, yeah. right? This this new um, perception or this new idea of Indianness—no longer these fearful, cowardly guileless Natives, but actually violent Natives who are going to war against colonial oppressors. Yeah, for sure. That's a really interesting point, even more generally. Like, think about, this is like, you know, almost 200 years after Columbus, right? Think about what has changed in terms of perceptions around Native people in those 200 years. Native people are no longer, like you said, timorous, fearful, guileless, ignorant, right? No longer that. They're actually violent. They're a threat. And that tracks really nicely onto the history. Right at the beginning, they're not seen as a threat, and so they can be characterized as timorous and guileless. But now, they are a threat, so they have to be characterized as bloodthirsty, violent savages that need to be eradicated, yeah. Like it
1: could also be um, taking the same like route that John Smith yeah. took, where it's like, he's almost making himself look like a hero, because, oh, the English are being like, tortured and whatnot, but they overcome it, so... Yeah. Does
0: it make them look better, maybe? So yeah, what it what it does is by make forcing readers to perceive of native peoples as violent, bloodthirsty savages, by contrast, we're meant to understand the English as righteous, you know, as, as um as people who whose uh, existence on the land is justified as righteous, god-fearing, god-like people. Good, yeah, both of those are absolutely true, right? This idea that the characterization of natives as savages, um, uh, might be interesting for audiences because it's different than prior characterizations. The idea that the characterization of natives as bloodthirsty savages might, by contrast, provide the English settlers with a better sense of themselves as God fearing or God like people. The other thing is just a, a really simple comment that is kind of um, maybe too obvious to uh, rise to the level of something that you would mention, but like. The reason why this type of statement uh, gives rise to this book being a bestseller is because we love blood and guts in what we read and what we watch like we are invested in the sensational right like things that we like to watch are violent sensational things I'm, I'm not speaking necessarily individually of all of you but like in general as a culture And this goes across centuries and generations. In general, as a culture, what we are drawn to, the things that we want to read, the things that are interesting to us are these kind of like either titillating stories, right? Sex and romance. Or they're about like violence. They're about war. They're about conflict where there's blood and guts and people's heads are getting knocked off. That kind of stuff. People want to read that. Like that's not just a 20th or 21st century phenomenon. That's a 17th century phenomenon. Readers are really interested in exotic, violent, strange um tales. Right? So that's definitely another reason why. So like it just it's sensational, it's violent, it's trashy, right? In certain ways. Blood and death and gore and sex, like that's that, that sells. It sold in the seventeenth century, it sells it sells today. So that's another reason why it's kind of so um, popular. What about this second statement? It gives us another sense of why it's so popular as well. Um, Now away we must must go with those barbarous creatures, with our bodies wounded and bleeding, and our hearts no less than our bodies. I want you to focus here in thinking through why this might be um, a bestseller, like something that brings us to a bestseller. Focus on the now away we must go. Who's the we here? Uh, the English, the English, and the we is like Mary and the other captives, absolutely. But so think about two, the process of reading this book. Think particularly if you're like in the 1680s and you get this book, and like you don't have a lot of entertainment options available to you in the 1680s, right? Can't like sit in front of the TV or something. You get this book, and this book is telling you now away we must go with these barbarous creatures. What's that? What's the word that that we is doing? It like puts you in the story, <laughs> That's the idea here: is that the narrative is implicating its readers in the story that it's telling. Okay. So when Mary or the narrator here says, "Now away we must go," of course, as Caitlin says, what we're talking about here, the "we" is the English. It's Mary and the other captives. But, from a narrative perspective, from a kind of strategic or rhetorical perspective, what that "away we must go" also does. Is bring the readers into the story, right? The reader is brought into the story through that narrative move. Right? It's quite in line with what we discussed about Smith, right? All of these kind of narrative and rhetorical strategies he uses to turn his book less into a history than into something that's enter- then more something that's entertaining, right? Um, a story, um, an adventure account. That kind of thing. So that's a rhetorical strategy that Rawlinson, the narrator of this text, is using to bring the readers into the fold. It implicates the readers in the adventure and in the action. Away, oh, we must go. It's almost like the book is grabbing you by the hand. right? Anybody, uh, anybody know Reading Rainbow? That children's show about literature? Yeah. The idea that is kind of like really operative in Reading Rainbow is like, take a look, it's in a book, Reading Rainbow, that kind of thing. The the idea here is that like, if you start to read a book, a book transports you to a new world, right? That's kind of a, a, a cliche that we have about literature is that one of the things, one of the magical things that literature does is that it transports us to a new world. This is basically what this text is doing as well, right? Away we must go. It's bringing a reader who, again, Is probably sitting in front of a fire in a cabin in six in the 1690s what it does is it takes that reader out of the day-to-day humdrum of their existence and pulls them to the frontier right no longer when they're in the imaginative space of this book no longer are they in their settled place they are pulled away from that village away from that safe and settled environment they are pulled imaginatively into the frontier, which actually segues us really nicely into this third point, right? Another thing that's really important about the captivity narrative is that the development of this genre tracks the actual movement of the frontier across historical time in the United States. So what do I mean by that? In the 1680s, captivity narratives are in New England. They're set in New England. Why? Because that's where the conflicts are happening between native people and settlers, right? So native people are taking New England captives in the 1680s, okay? By the time, um, let's say, the 1820s rolls about, captivity narratives are still a really popular genre of American literature, but they're no longer set in New England, why? By the 1820s, why are there no more New England captivity narratives, yeah. I'm gonna take a
1: guess, the dip. Trail of Tears.
0: Well, not quite, but you're, I mean, the idea you're working with is true, but not quite in this context, yeah. That
1: the uh, location where the captivities took place kind of moved?
0: Yeah, so there's, yeah. there's no more um, open conflict between Native people and settlers in New England in the 1820s. Those conflicts have gone, right? Um, where are open conflicts between Natives and settlers happening in, like, let's say the 1820s, 1810s, 1820s? Midwest. What's that? Like the Midwest. Yeah, it's actually not as far as we think. It's like the Ohio River Valley, the Mississippi, and actually in some respects, upstate New York. right? If you drive around upstate New York around here and you look at like all the town signs like founded in this or that, it's notable that most of these towns are actually not founded, let' say in like 1778 or something. They, they're not there as such, like when America is founded. They're founded in the 1810s. First decades of the 19th century. Why? It's because at the time of the American Revolution, this place that we are in now, this was very sparsely populated by settlers, if at all. Right? If at all. It was mostly Indian land, right? And so the frontier, by the time we get into the 1820s, right, and later into the 19th century, it's actually like upstate New York, it's the Ohio River Valley, it's the Mississippi River Valley. What about later into the 19th century, when we're in like the 1870s? Where do you think the captivity narratives are? They're no longer in New York, right? Yeah.
1: More towards the West Coast.
0: Yeah. So um, the Plains, right? Um, the Dakotas, Colorado, all of these places that are starting to be settled by the end of the 19th century. Right? So the development of the genre tracks the development of the frontier, right? The frontier is no longer in New England by the 1800s, so there's no more captivity narratives. The frontier is no longer in the Ohio River Valley by the late 19th century, so there's no longer any captivity narrative. In so, inevitably, what does that mean for the fate and the future of the captivity narrative? Once the frontier closes, what happens in the captivity narrative? Um, I just have
2: a question. Yeah. Like, the people, so the people like say, well, I guess it wasn't settled yet, but the captivity narrative like goes away as it goes west. Yeah. So. I don't know. Just, I guess it just dissipates. It's like it's it's not a thing anymore. So.
0: Yeah, that's exactly right. right. Is that like why don't we read captivity narratives anymore? Why are they not bestsellers in the twentieth or twenty first century? It's because there's no more frontier. There's no more violent conflict between indigenous peoples and settlers. Right. So we don't have this genre is like still around, but it's not popular and it's very not very often written. And the reason why is that the historical circumstances that necessitated the creation of the genre are gone, right? The 20th and maybe 21st century um, analogous genre to something like the captivity narrative is probably kind of books about kidnappings or child abductions, right? But they don't have anything to do necessarily with native people, right? Books about kidnappings and child abductions where people are taken away and then potentially reintroduced back into society. Those are the books that do some of the work now that captivity narratives did then, but it's a different genre, right? There's no more frontier and there's no more conflict. So as Joe was saying, there's no more captivity narrative, really properly speaking. So it moves west, and then by the time the frontier is done in the west, by the time the frontier is closed, right, there's no more captivity narratives because there's no more Indian captivity. So it's really interesting to track the history of a genre. Like we think of genre as these things, maybe potentially you guys do, um, that are timeless, ahistorical. Like it's a comedy or it's a drama, right? That these things exist without a kind of like clear relationship to history. But no, actually like they're massively historically contingent. They ebb and they, they wane and they kind of come and they go and... And that's how they work. So it's a, kind of a, an interesting point about the captivity narrative. Okay, last thing, which is more of a kind of theoretical or abstract point about the captivity narrative as a genre. Again, I'm kind of trying to characterize this narrative as a genre, tell you what it does and why it's important. The first thing, fourth thing is that in the abstract or in theoretical terms, the captivity narrative is really interested in the dividing lines between us, as in settlers, and them, as in indigenous people and the anxiety that results from what I'm calling the porosity of that line. Porosity means like, it's actually not firm and stable, right? There, we have a, we think we are fundamentally different settlers than indigenous people, but what captivity narratives show us is that maybe we're actually not very different at all. Maybe in some respects we're quite similar, or maybe even a settler who's taken captive by Indians could, in some respects, common in India, which in this time period was incredibly anxiety inducing. Yeah. There was like a there was a story. It was in the uh, in the reading. It was
2: an Indian that was. I guess it was still with the indigenous people, but it was working with the yeah. English people. Yeah. exactly. Exactly. that's thought that was like interesting how they like they were smart enough to work with the people, but like they were still like acting as if they were part of the tribe.
0: So. And it goes both ways, right? So there were native people who uh, interacted with settlers and became kind of like important people in settler communities and societies. But what this captivity narrative shows to us is that actually some of the people who were taken captive, they never go back to their settler families. So there's a really famous uh, captivity narrative from the 1820s called the, The Life and History of Mrs. Mary Jemison. And she's taken captive in the Ohio River Valley in the early 19th century. She's eventually traded amongst a bunch of indigenous groups. She ends up with the Seneca, who are kind of the indigenous peoples of Western New York. Um, And she settles outside of what is now Rochester, New York, right around actually what is now Geneseo, New York. And she lives the rest of her life as a Seneca woman. Right, No blood, like no blood relation to the Seneca, but she's taken captive at a very young age, and she lives the rest of her life as a Seneca woman. Any of you guys been to Letchworth State Park outside of Rochester? It's actually a big statue over there. She's called the White Woman of the Genesee. at right, the Genesee River, which is a river that runs through Rochester and down um, um, into Genesee. Right. So the, the cool thing about the genre is that like one of the things that makes it so interesting, one of the things that is kind of um, so attractive to people in this time about reading it is that it gives you this kind of like imaginative, pleasurable way to kind of dip your toe into being something you're not, right? To kind of almost feel or sense what it would be like to live with the Indians, which is, of course, a tremendously fearful and anxiety-inducing thing. But when you do it, right, in the context of reading a book, it's safe, right? So it gives you that thrill. It gives you that titillation. It gives you that exhilaration of feeling like you are something you're not or feeling like you're in a new place or a new time, right? It plays on that anxiety, right, that we have about, hmm, if I really went over to the dark side, quote-unquote, would I become dark? Like, if I was taken by the indigenous people, would I still be white? Or would I become something I'm not? Would I become the very thing that I fear? Right? The genre plays with that anxiety in really interesting ways. And not so much today, but when we read for Wednesday and Friday, you're actually gonna see Mary Rawlinson dealing with those anxieties as well. There are moments in this text where Mary is kind of seems to be suggesting that it might be okay the way she's living now. It actually might be better than the way she was living before, for a variety of reasons. And that is really anxiety inducing and, and that fear is one of the reasons why the genre was so popular, right? Because it suggested that that boundary line that we have, that firm frontier line between settlers and Indians, it's not as firm as we make it out to be. Is that any? No. any questions on any of that? Just defining the genre for you is really important to um, American literary history to have an understanding of what the captivity narrative is and what it does. Okay. Alright, so we'll move on to the guiding questions. I think there's two, three slides? Yeah, good. Okay, so second slide of content here. What I asked you in the guided Questions was, why does Rawlinson insert biblical passages into her narrative, and, and what purpose do you think they serve, both for Rawlinson and for her readers? So uh, I'll read all three of them, and we can kind of talk through what they're doing. Um, she says, Oh the doleful, that means sad, sight that was now to behold at this house come, Behold the works of the Lord, what desolations he has made in the earth. Of thirty-seven persons who were in this one house, none escaped either present death or a bitter captivity, save only one, who might say as he and I only am escaped alone to tell the news. Let's let's just stop on that one before we go to the others. What's happening? Really at the level of structure and even at the level of form in this first passage. What's going on? How does Rawlinson use biblical quotations here?
1: At the time, the Christ, or the English people were very Christian, yeah. so my thought process was that if something were to happen, that God had something to do with it. So God obviously had something to do with it. Good,
0: good. So yeah, this is something we talked about on Friday, too, when we were talking about Bradford, right? This idea that Robinson was a Puritan, right, just like Bradford was. They understand their experiences in relationship to their connection to God, and we're going to go into that a little bit. But before we even get there, just from a formal or structural level, what I want you to notice is that every time something happens to Mary, right, it was a sad sight at the house. Every time something happens to Mary, instead of just continuing on with her narrative, she pauses and she inserts a biblical quotation. Right? right. There was only one person who escaped death or bitter captivity, and that makes her think about the biblical quotation, and she drops that biblical. That's a consistent pattern in the narrative. Some kind of experience happens to Mary or somebody else and then the book kind of drops back from that story or that experience and drops in a biblical quotation. Right? So on one level what does that signal to us? What that signals to us is that the Bible is like this kind of really important text for Mary and for her readers, right? It signals that the Bible would have been something that everyone would have known line by line Right? You'll notice that, like, Mary does not say, like, in the chapter and verse of the particular Bible, right? She just drops it. She's not quoting her sources. Why? She's not citing her sources. Excuse me. Why? Because all our readers are going to know where it comes from. Right? So what it suggests is a kind of, like, innate and massive familiarity with the Bible and with religious documents. That's one of the reasons why it's there, right? Because everybody knows it. let's go through the other ones and talk exactly, or more particularly, about what Caitlin brought us earlier. So she says, we open the Bible and lighted on Psalm 27, in which Psalm we especially took notice of that, wait on the Lord, be of good courage, and he shall strengthen thine heart, wait I say on the Lord, and then later, I opened my Bible to read, and the Lord brought that precious scripture to me. Thus saith the Lord, refrain thy voice from weeping, and thine eyes from tears, for thy work shall be rewarded, and they shall come again, from the land of the enemy. What's happening in both of these passages? Yeah.
1: They both begin with, I open the Bible.
0: I open the Bible, and then what happens? That's exactly right. And what happens?
1: She um, brings up like a verse having to do with what's going on.
0: Okay, that's the first thing to say, is that when she opens the Bible, and when there's a quote from the Bible that's dropped into the text, It is reflecting on and responding to the experience that's happening to Mary. These are not random biblical insertions, okay? The biblical insertions are always reflecting on and responding to what's happening to Mary. That's really important. Another thing that's a little less important, but that is also notable here, is that whenever she opens the Bible, she's not actually picking out the verse, you'll notice. What does it mean to light on something? That means it just kind of comes to you, right? So in the second passage, the verse actually just comes to Mary. She doesn't pick it out. In the third passage, even more so, it's not even that she lights on it or picks it out. The Lord brought her that passage, right? So in the second passage and the third passage, what we're getting uh, a sense of is that, like, this inclusion of biblical language, this relation, constant relation of her own experiences to biblical passages and biblical scenes, right, is almost like semi-conscious if it's conscious at all, right? She's just lighting on the passage. It's coming to her. God is putting that passage in front of her, right? What does that suggest about how Puritans see their lives and their experiences?
1: Yeah. Almost like the chosen ones, the chosen people by God. Yeah. Everyone else is less than or inferior
0: or the enemy. Cool, so in one sense, like, the idea that you would open a book and that God would be, like, standing over your shoulder and being like, hey, turn to page 35, it's really relevant for what's going on for you. Yeah, as Caitlin's suggesting, what it, what it says to us is that, like, the Puritans understood themselves as among the elect, as among the chosen, as having a very particular and special relationship to God. Right? A very close one. Right? But that closeness manifests, too, in a different way. Whenever the Puritans experience something, And this comes out of what we see here with these biblical quotations. Whenever the Puritans experience something, something happens to them. And again, this is something we talked about on Friday with Bradford. Whenever the Puritans experience something, whenever something happens to the Puritans, they interpret that action purely and solely as evidence for God's perception of them. Okay? When an experience happens to Mary... She immediately goes to the Bible. She immediately goes to a biblical verse. She is perceiving all of her experiences through the lens of religion. Have you ever heard of, like the term rose-colored glasses? That means what? If you wear rose-colored glasses. It's like you see through God. Well, not, well, not necessarily, although we're getting to that point. But what, if you just were to describe somebody as wearing rose-tinted glasses... Yeah, that you look, at, you look at everything in the world in a very optimistic and beautiful way, right? Like, if you're wearing rose-tinted glasses, what that means is that, like, even something that most people would perceive as bad, you can see the good in, right? What you might think of Mary as doing is wearing kind of, like, God-tinted glasses. <laughs> that is to say that everything that happens to Mary or everything that Mary sees, she's perceiving through the lens of her religion, through the lens of her faith. And in a very particular way, whatever happens to Mary, okay, whether good or bad, is purely because of God's perception of her. If something good happens to Mary, and you'll see this throughout the text, and we'll, kind of, we'll find it over and over again. If anything good happens to Mary, that's because God is on her side. That's because God is praising her. If anything bad happens to Mary, that's because God is censuring her. That's because God is telling her that she's strayed from the path. Every experience that Mary has, she perceives it through this biblical paradigm. Every experience. It's either a manifestation of God's grace or a manifestation of God's censure. Does that make sense? All experiences for Mary are either manifestations of God's grace or God's censure. She lives her life with God-tinted glasses. All experiences are fundamentally related to God, to religion, and to the literal manifestation of God and religion to the Bible. So that's the big reason, to just kind of sum that up, step back a little bit, that's the big reason why biblical passages are inserted in this text, is that for the Puritans, all of these experiences that Mary's writing about, they all are related to her connection to God, or back there you actually can't experience life without having that relationship to God for a period of time. All your experiences are manifestations of that relationship. And so it makes perfect sense that literally on the page, we would have the biblical passages. It's kind of like a formal correlative to that theological idea. Does that make sense? A formal correlative to that theological idea? If the theological idea is that whenever something happens to me, It has to do with the big man up above. The formal correlative to that is that whenever something happens on the page, there's always a quote from the Bible. Yeah, cool, okay. Big idea. So much so that we talked about it a little bit on Friday, I'm just emphasizing it here. This is kind of Puritan theology 101. Um, Anything else, what else is the Bible passage doing here? I think we hit most of it. I mean, the last thing to say is that, and this is kind of, we've been talking around this, but I haven't said it explicitly, is that what the Bible does for Mary is it allows her to understand and interpret her experiences. It's kind of, we've already said this in so many terms, in so many words, but basically um, the long and short of it is that what the Bible does and what these biblical passages do is they allow not only Mary, but her readers to interpret her experiences in light of their faith. It's almost like a key. It's a little cheat sheet. This thing happens to Mary. Reader, you should think about this thing that happened to Mary in this way. You drop that Bible quote. A little cheat sheet, a little key to understanding the book for readers and for Mary. Okay. All right, so keep that in mind then when we go to the next passage or the next question. In this narrative, Indians, native people, indigenous peoples are described and they act quite violent and quite brutally, but they're actually quite nice sometimes too, right? The question is, how does Robinson reconcile this? The fact that her native captors are at once quite violent and brutal, and also at times, seemingly, paradoxically, quite nice. So let's read some of these passages. Whereupon I, Mary, earnestly entreated the Lord, entreated means begged the Lord, That he would consider my low estate, low estate means that she's just terrible shit is happening to her, and show me a token, a sign for good, and if it were his blessed will, some sign and hope of some relief. And indeed quickly the Lord answered in some measure my poor prayers, for as I was going up and down, mourning and lamenting my condition, my son came to me and asked me how I did. In this time of the absence of his master, his master in this context is the native person who has taken him captive. His dame, his female master, brought him to see me. I took this to be some gracious answer to my earnest and unfeigned desire. So what's actually happening in this situation? Mary's sad, lonely, depressed. She starts to pray to God. She says, God, give me a sign. Show me that things are going to be okay. Then what happens?
2: Uh, the, like, the master, I guess, like, just brings her son to her? Her son shows up. Of a different, like, area? Yeah, her son, out of nowhere,
0: shows up. First time she's seen him in ages. Right. Mary is praying and asking to God for a sign. Show me something that's going to lift my spirits. Show me something that's going to help me get through this. Boom. Son shows up. For Mary, who's done that? God. God's done that. All right. For Mary, the Lord answers her prayers and sends her son. But the text also tells us that somebody else is answering her prayers. Who else is answering those prayers? Who actually, like literally on the ground, sends her son to her? Yeah? The master. Yeah, or the master's wife in this case. But yes, the natives, right? The dame. So, Mary is saying to herself and writing in her text that the person, quote-unquote, who has answered her prayers and brought her her son and relieved her of her suffering is God. But the text itself, literally speaking, tells us it's native people. Okay, let's keep that in mind, right, as we go through some of these other passages, right? Another one, the bottom one on this slide. I cannot but take notice of the wonderful mercy of God to me and those afflictions in sending me a Bible. Okay, God sends her a Bible. One of the Indians that came from the Medfield fight had brought some plunder, came to me, and asked me if I would have a Bible. He had got one in his basket. I was glad of it and asked him whether he thought the Indians would let me read. He answered, yes. Can we talk through this passage in in light of what we talked about in the first one? Mary gets a Bible. She ascribes that action to whom? Who's given her the Bible? God. God. God has sent Mary a Bible, according to Mary, right? Because she has to perceive all of the experiences that she has in relation to her relationship with God, right? For Mary, she has gotten that Bible, and it's because God has sent it to her. But who actually brings her the Bible?
1: The natives.
0: The native people do, right? So in both of these cases, what's happening is that the native captors, which are otherwise described in this text as savage, violent, brutal, and bloodthirsty, and don't get me wrong, they do some terrible things, right? But they're described in this text in other moments as savage, violent, and bloodthirsty, but in these moments, they're actually doing something quite nice for Mary, right? They're giving her a Bible. They're sending her her son. Two things... Probably among all the others, that would be the things that would brighten her spirits, right? Knowing her connection to her faith and her connection to her family. Okay. So let's think through this idea a little bit more. Think about the effect of it. One more more example, and then we'll kind of go through them as a whole. On the next slide, Mary says, by the advantage of some brush, like blow down tree branches and things, Long Island people, I don't know if you know what, what Brush, I don't know. Never heard
2: of it. You've never
0: heard of Brush. You two are Long Island? Are you? Over All three of you? Yeah, so you guys don't know what Brush is. It's just wood. You guys don't see it very much. It's, I'm just kidding. <laughs> By the advantage of some Brush, Joe is not having any of it. He's like, I, <laughs> By the advantage of some Brush, which they had laid upon the raft to sit upon, I did not wet my foot, which many of themselves at the other end were midnight deep, which cannot but be acknowledged as a favor of God, to my weakened body, it being a very cold time. I was not before acquainted with such do- kinds of doings or dangers. When thou pathest through the waters, I will be with thee, and through the rivers, they shall not overflow thee. So here again, what's happening? Yeah. They're
1: crossing a river and there's like
2: a down tree and like God sent the tree to be fallen and they cross it and okay. she's like the one that's picked to be on it because yeah. the
0: Indians are all like deep. Right, exactly. So what Mary perceives is that God has placed this brush across this river so that she does not, you know, either drown or go leg, mid-leg deep and get sick, right? So it's like that, you know, it's like uh, God has taken off his jacket and put it on the puddle for Mary so that she doesn't have to walk in the puddle on the sidewalk or something. That's what Mary perceives,
2: yeah. It's almost like they're using, like, religion as an excuse to ignore the fact that the Indians are being so
0: generous to them.
2: Like, yeah. not, the, not, 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 that point. I feel like, I don't know, I feel
0: like that's what she's doing. That's precisely what she's doing. That's exactly where we're going to go. Though instinctually,
2: though.
0: Like, I don't know. Insti- like On the part of the, the Puritans, they're doing it instinctually? I, yeah, I guess so. Yeah. This is an important distinction. So let's get to that idea of whether it's instinctual or conscience, conscious in a second. But to stick on your first point, That's exactly what's happening. All of these good, kind things that the native people are doing for Mary, she doesn't perceive them as such. And she needn't perceive them as such. Why? Because she understands these good, kind things as God's actions. So what that allows Mary to do is to to stay comfortable and to stay stagnant and stable in her sense of native people as savages as unkind, as godless, as brutal, and as violent, even though, right in front of her face, literally, over and over and over again, Native people are doing good, nice things for her. She never has to see it as such, she never has to perceive it, she never compliments a Native person. She's never like, oh, those Native people who like laid down the brush across the river for me, they're so nice, I thank them, they're very kind. No, who does she thank? She thanks God, right? Her belief, her God-tinted glasses, allow her to see the kind actions of her native captors, not as the kind actions of her captors, but as the kind actions of God. And that reorientation, seeing those kind actions as the actions of God, as opposed to the natives, allows her, Joe, as you're saying, to continue to see the natives as godless, as inferior, as savage, as violent, and as brutal. That's exactly right. That's the effect of this. The effect of perceiving of all of these experiences through uh, the lens of her faith allows her to not see Native people for the kindnesses they're doing to her. So to just put a really finer point on this idea is that she reconciles this by acknowledging or by believing that all of these kind actions are actually... Um, the effect of God, as opposed to the effect of Native people. So not only does that allow Mary to perceive of Native people as violent and savage, despite the nice things they do for her, it also allows Mary to think of Native peoples in a different way, too. It it allows Mary to think of Native peoples as um, having no agency. People know what I mean by agency in this context? Basically, they have no self-will. The things that they do doesn't matter why or their intentions behind them the things that they do are just manifestations of God and so what it allows Mary to think is that native people have no agency they don't have power right they're not doing the things that they're doing for her it's God doing those things so it allows Mary to perceive of native people as agency less it allows them her to perceive of them as savage As uncivilized and as inferior. Her religion allows her to see these Native people in this way, and it blinds her to any other interpretation that she might have of those actions. That's just riffing off of Joe's point, which is exactly right. So that's the effect. It allows her to see Native people, not for the kindnesses they do, but allows her to rest easy and comfortably, in her preconceptions about Native people, which are that they're inferior, savage, violent, and without power. The second point is kind of an aside, but it's an interesting thing to think about for the last three minutes. Like, is this intentional, strategic, conscious, or is it instinctual? What do you think? Yeah. I don't think it's intentional at
1: all. I think that the way that Puritans are raised is that, like, God is the reason for everything, so it's like, almost like the way you're brought up, like, you're brought up knowing, like, being taught a certain thing, you're going to believe that certain thing, and you're going to be, like, very stubborn about it. Yeah, I think that's right, I
0: mean, something we said on Friday was that, like, Bradford and the Puritans, like, we would understand them in today's terms as religious extremists. They are dogmatic to the extreme. It's an instinctual thing that you perceive the experiences that you have as manifestations of God's grace or censure. It's not like a strategic thing. Like, you don't know you have the glasses on, the God-tinted glasses. That's the kind of other thing to say about the God-tinted glasses. You don't know you're wearing them. That's just how you see the world, right? We all actually live with those types of things. We all live with these kind of, like, pairs of glasses on that make us see the world in particular ways. The whole point is that we have no idea that we're wearing them. Otherwise, we would question or challenge those beliefs. Like we don't know that they're, we're wearing them. So yeah, I do think it's actually quite instinctual. Does that make sense?
2: I was also thinking, like, if it were four Englishmen that came along and helped her, yeah. what would be the difference in her outlook on that? Like, it still be a Godsend thing, or
0: just be four Englishmen. Oh my God, these Englishmen came and helped me. So, no, no, no. I think I think the point here is, is really well taken. It would still be God it would still be God. That's what I think, too, but like... No, like it that's is. What I, that's what it would still be God's grace, or censure. If the Englishmen were the people who were helping, it would still be God. The difference here is that Mary already has good feelings and good thoughts about the English people. So ascribing their actions to God does not also allow her to ascribe to the English people that they're savages, or uncivilized, or inferior. right? She's ascribing everybody's actions to God, but she already thinks of the English as good. She already thinks of the natives as bad. She can never think of the natives as anything other than bad. Because when they do a good thing for her, it's not something they're doing. It's something that God's doing. But you're totally right. It's completely instinctual, and she would have the exact same interpretation if it was English people and not natives. It's a really good point. Any other questions or thoughts? Cool. Thanks, folks. Have a good one.